Hi, it's Georgina Terry. Welcome to another ByCast. We have a neat switch on this ByCast, which is I don't have to do anything because I get to be interviewed by Jackie Phelan. She's making my life very, very simple. Thanks, Jackie. Well, Georgina, I'm just, uh, it's a thrill to get to do a podcast with you, and you're definitely, to me, uh, the pioneering bicycle frame builder for women in the industry. And um, I'm not sure if the listeners know how uh, how forward-thinking you are, but um, I bet you know that there was an awful lot of gendered bicycling 100 years ago. What happened? <laughs> I think there was, and I think there still is to some extent. Um, You know, when I first got into this, it was back in really around 1982 or 83 that I was thinking about this design for women when that kind of came about. And it, it just, it kind of hit me like a lightning bolt. And I realized, I think, that to some extent it wasn't that the industry had been ignoring women as much as it was that they just weren't tuned in to any of the signals. You know, it was it was full steam ahead. Uh, if if women were saying anything, it just didn't seem to register on the Richter scale for some reason. And that's my definition of ignoring. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, I guess it could be to some extent because I I tend to be. I tend to give people kind of the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that's not so good because I get oh, taken no, no. advantage it's the, of. It's the essential difference between you and me, which leads me to another question. Were you, did you have supportive parents or not? Uh, I only had one parent at that point, and that was my dad. And, and he was fascinated by this whole thing. So, so he was very supportive. You know, the thought that's that fantastic. I would just kind of take off and do something crazy like this. And he came from a little bit of a small business background background himself. So uh, I think he understood where I was coming from with wanting to have my own business and not just be working for someone else. So it was really good in that sense. At that time was Xerox, according to your... Yeah, I was at Xerox. I was working as a project engineer there on a little laser printer that they had just started producing. And... uh, one of the cooler parts about that job was I rode my bike back and forth to work every day, weather permitting, when we weren't under, you know, three feet of snow here. And How far was that? It was about, uh, in total, I would say maybe a 16-mile commute, so not very far at all. Eight miles each way. Yep. Yeah, that's ideal. Yeah, it was great, you know, because you don't really get sweaty or anything. Over, I just throw my nice clothes in a backpack and arrive, roll up to the front door, leave the bike there while everybody else trudged in from the parking lot, change clothes. Right. It was kind of neat. So in the um, early '80s, you knew there was this this gap, mm-hmm. and uh, you, did you just design for fun? Um, yeah. Did you go to that bike show while you were still working at Xerox? No, I had quit long long since then. Uh, I quit Xerox, I think, probably around 83 or so and hit the uh-huh. first bike show maybe around 84, 85. I took a couple of years okay. to figure it out. And, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't just building for women. I was building for anybody who came and said, hey, I need a bike. It was just realizing that all these women all had virtually the same complaint. I mean, if they were mm-hmm. smaller women, the complaint was, I can't even clear the top tube, let right. alone reach the handlebars. And even tall women were saying, you know, I don't have any problems straddling this bike, but boy, do I feel stretched out on it. And, right. and after a while, I thought, 
way too many women are saying the same thing for this just to be coincidental. <laughs> for sure. So who taught you the fine art of frame building? Uh, I was really self-taught with that. It was kind of interesting. I don't know if you remember, but at the time there were a lot of, well, there was one place in particular called, particular called Proteus out of, I think, Baltimore. That, there was a kit. Yeah, it was a kit. And they'd Rod sent Schaefer you a, told, Yeah, Ralph Schaefer got started that way. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I bought the book, and there was a guy named Richard Talbot who wrote a fantastic book, you know, this limited edition, very nicely published book on building and designing your own frame set. And I lent that book to someone years ago. I can't remember who, and oh, I wish I had that book back. I really do, because it, you know, was covered with my notes and my grease and dirty fingerprints. So, so that taught me, you know, the fundamentals of alignment and that kind of stuff. But then what I didn't know was, like you said, how to braise. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just read a little bit about it. So I read a little bit about it, and I went to the local local store, welding place, and uh, I bought a, a kit and everything. And then I had this friend who was enamored of ancient Volvos, and he just loved taking them apart, you know, I mean, every bit of it and putting it back together. And he was doing a lot of welding, which isn't what I wanted to do, but, you know, he knew about oxyacetylene torches and all that. And I said, can you just, you know, come over and just teach me the basics? And he did, you know, so I knew how to turn the thing on without blowing myself up and how to turn it off without having it go Bam, which I'm sure you hear a lot at your place. Mm -hmm. uh, so I learned that way. You know, coming at this from an engineering background, I, I also was really interested in metallurgically what was brazing doing to metal and what did I have to do to metal to make sure that it retained its strength and that the joint retained its strength and all that. So I loved learning about it from that standpoint. Um, I don't know if this company is around today, but back then there was a company called Handy and Harmon, and they made tons of different fluxes, brazing rods, all this stuff, and then they published tons of technical data explaining, okay, your gap between your lug and your tube should be this much, otherwise you're going to lose all the strength, but you know what? If you hit the gap right, you'll have more strength than any of those metals had coming fresh out of the out of the tube or whatever and it was just fascinating to me I mean absolutely fascinating so it I I just kind of you know bootstrapped I've always been like that if there's something I want to learn I just go out and learn it I don't have time to wait for someone to teach me or to go through a formal procedure if you're going to do it just do it <laughs> Wow, I uh, really admire that. I, I'm from, uh, I guess, the opposite school, which is let me sign up in a class. <laughs> um, I guess I, was, I wanted to ask some nice shallow questions, too, uh, but we're going to bounce back and forth because I can uh, tell that there's so much that I want to learn about you. But um, are you currently reading anything? Am I currently reading anything? I yeah, like do you yeah. Books or are you like Charlie? He doesn't read. I love to read, actually, and it's it's more a case I think of finding time for it as much as anything. Uh, recently, I've been reading a lot of books about uh, pre well, po I should say post revolutionary war history in this country. You know, the 1780s, the early 1800s, the time when the Constitution was really getting established and this country was getting established because it. You know, you read about so much back then, and you see it in what's going on today, how a lot of these attitudes came about and, and why we are the way we are. I'm also reading a book uh, which is a uh, kind of a, 
a nutshell guide to oil and gas law because we are about to start here in New York State dealing with this problem of hydrofracking for natural gas. The Marcellus Shale uh, runs through about three, three quarters of the state. And we're looking at what's happening in Pennsylvania and going, I don't think so. We want that happening here. Yeah, and, you know, and, and we need to know all the, the right reasons and the whole story. So I thought, you know, I'll just read that and kind of come up to steam on some of that so I can look at this through a, a better set of eyes. Do you sit on any boards? Uh, I uh, I don't sit on any boards, but I do do a lot of volunteer work for the Montezuma National Wildlife Refuge, which is about 60 miles from my home. I actually maintain the website for the Friends of Montezuma and for Fish and Wildlife's refuge website, and I maintain their membership database. I am, I guess, not really on the board, but I'm, I'm one of a little five-woman group here in my town of Penfield that started a group called the Penfield Green Initiative. And, and our mission is to protect Penfield's environment. We do that through working really closely with the town and keeping an eye on things and, and bringing up issues when we see them. And that's been fantastic. Awesome. Well, yeah, but it does seem like bikes and the environment go hand in glove, don't they? They do. And, you know, I never thought that much about the environment until I became a cyclist. And, and as you know, just after a short time on a bike, suddenly you become aware of things like wind <laughs> and humidity. <laughs> and that kind of leads you to thinking about meteorology and those kinds of things. And then you start thinking about... You know, I'm able to ride because there's a lot of open space. I mean, a lot of people ride in cities and all that, and that's fantastic. But just to be out in the open is is an amazing thing. And I think when you're in the open like that, you start looking at things around you like flora and fauna and birds, and you see the seasons change, and you realize right. it, it changes from hour to hour, not year to year. And then right. the sensitivity starts to become kind of embedded, I think, in your soul. At least that's what happened to me. Well, certainly. I definitely, I believe bicyclists uh, realize that they're an animal. We're not looking in at the animal world at all. We're, we're right in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. And we just don't happen to have the world's best fur, which is why bike gear, clothing, and stuff like that. <laughs> that's why Gore Bike Wear is in business. <laughs> right. So um, you made your first bikes and didn't learn from a, uh, anything but the Proteus book. Which right. Is incredible. Right. And uh, your first year that you uh, sold out on the bike, you know, like you bought bikes to a show and got rid of every last one of them. Yeah, I like took about artist. five frames to a, a bicycle rally called the New England Area Rally, which was held. Okay, so it was a rally, yeah. not, not a horrible bike show. No, no, I started with consumer rallies because coming from, you know, the bike club background, I was used to going to the Great Eastern Rally and the LAW National Conventions. I mean, 5,000 people would go to these things and... There would be exhibits and all that. So I thought, well, there's a logical place to start because that's my audience. Let's see what they think. That's so, fantastic. Yeah, I went to this rally with these bikes, you know, and there's this big sign, Terry Precision Bikes for Women, and these women are coming up saying, so what's the deal? They don't look like women's bikes. They have top tubes on them. And right. I explained, you know, the whole philosophy. They're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, can I test drive one? Yeah, take it out. You know, they come back 20 <laughs> minutes later and say, here's the check. <laughs> Was this the ones with the 
smaller front wheel? The smaller bikes did have that, but the, the larger bikes that I built then still had 700C wheels, but a much shorter top tube than you would normally find, say, right. on a, a frame that size, a 56 or a 58. Uh, that's awesome. Part, you're going to have to pardon me for cross-talking or talking while you're talking, but I, I realize that if you had started trying to go to those bike shows where the booths cost in the thousands of dollars, yeah. what a drag that would have been. Yeah, and that that you uh, got started in the the mellowest possible way with this perfect segue from you know you being the enthusiast and your own milieu, the rally people, and being you know kind of every step of the way getting seriously enthusiastic support was uh, really what needed to happen. I was going to say, you know, you're right. I never really thought about it like that because my, my venturing into the Interbike trade show really didn't happen until oh, a year and a half or two years later. And I think by then the word had started to get around and it was an easier thing to walk into had I gone in cold. But you know, Jackie, I'm so damn stubborn. I, I have to tell you, when I have an idea and I think that idea is right, God help anyone who gets in my way, mm. whether it's an industry you're or here. a person or anything else. And, and it's just because I can shut everything out and and say, you know, I'm I'm working on all eight cylinders here, and when they're all firing at the same time, I am right, and I will win. <laughs> so that saved my bacon on a couple of times, not to mention probably gotten me in hot water. Can I be on your team? <laughs> By all means. <laughs> when I think of you, I think you already are. <laughs> I really enjoyed looking at the history of your bicycle um Model names, Precision, Gambit, Decision, Precision, whoops, Prism, yeah. Gambit, Decision, yeah. Precision, Crescendo, Chrome, Mount Marcy, Jacaranda, Athena, Solstice, Moo, yeah. Flora, Susan B., Symmetry, Isis, and Fast Woman. And there's probably more, but they read kind of like a, a, a building poem. Oh, it's pretty wild. With how neat. Nice tree thrown in there. Jacaranda is one of my favorites, partly because of the name, but partly because it's got beautiful purple flowers. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, was it fun making up those names? Did you get to make them up yourself? Boy, it was always difficult. And, and to tell you the truth, I haven't made up that many myself. You know, the very first bike was the Precision, and <clears throat> the thought was I had some, some good friends who were really excited about what I was doing, that Precision really kind of summed it all up in many, many ways. Precise because not any bike would do, precise because of the way it was built, that kind of thing. And that led us into precision. And the dis dispatch came about because I, the first little shop I had was on a street called Despatch Drive. And Despatch is really the older spelling of dispatch, which, mm -hmm. you know, has the feeling of quickness. And then Gambit we came up with. I had a woman who was advising me in public relations at one point. And that bike was done. Uh, we didn't build it. It was built by a now-defunct import-export company on Long Island. And we were thinking about, what are we going to name this bike? She said, you know, this really is kind of a gambit. <laughs> I said, that's it. It is definitely a gambit. <laughs> so, they've, you know, it's, it's kind of been a process of people just sitting around and throwing out a lot of the names. And the decision is kind of an interesting one. When we introduced the Dispatch, which was made in Japan, it was our first bike that was ever made in Japan, they sold like hotcakes, and we ran out of one size and could not get them from Japan. And so we thought, well, let's just build a less expensive precision 
into a dispatch and we'll call it decision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> wow. Made where? Made in the United States. It was made here in Rochester. We were building both precision and decision. And I think actually there was only a run of about 20 or 25 decisions. So if anyone has one, they've got quite a bike. kind of rare. Yeah. Right. Um, I wonder if that's the one that um, Sheldon Brown's um, website points out as a, a rarity. I think it is. I think I've read that on his site. Yeah. It is definitely, he definitely uh, favors you with some awesome coverage. Oh, yeah, and he was the best. Oh, what a guy. Man, he's just done terrific things for this industry. You went to uh, Japan for a while, like, what, five years maybe? Actually, did I go to Japan? No, I mean, you took your. You, did you ever go to Japan? Oh, no, I did. Oh, but production. Production you did go to Japan. Yeah. We ended up going to Japan because we needed a less expensive bike. I mean, as the concept of this bicycle for a woman took off, <clears throat> it was great. <clears throat> but really out of the price range of a lot of people. So some people hooked me up with a trading company in Japan and said, you know, they're making bikes for West Coast Cycle. They're doing the Centurion line. Really good operations. You talk to these guys. So I did. I really, really like them a lot. Uh, and they did come to the United States a lot. They loved bicycles, and they understood the concept right away. And they were terrific to work with because you'd hand them a design. You'd say, okay, and we're going to run Shimano whatever on this bike. And they come back and go, you know, I think you need to change this a little bit, maybe this angle a little bit. Uh, Otherwise, the shifting's not going to be quite right. They were just so sensitive to stuff like that. So it it was a great relationship. And then, unfortunately, like a lot of Japanese businesses, they got priced out of the market and closed the doors. And at that point, we ended up going to Taiwan. Did you have the same ease of communication there? No. Much, much, much different. And and the biggest difference to me, Jackie, that I felt was the artistic aspect of the bicycle was missing completely. I mean, you know how, how artistic the Japanese can be about so many things. And they were like that about the bicycle as well. You got the feeling that... The designs were coming from people for whom it was just a job. It was a draftsman sitting at his computer, okay, fine, nah, 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 and then it's done. You know, and they would miss things in the process of doing that. So it was like it was just a job versus it was a passion for the Japanese. And uh, I really, really miss that because it's, it's just not the same. I'm thinking pride of workmanship and uh, elevated education might have had something to do with it and uh, the difference between Japan and Taiwan. Yeah. But Charlie's experience uh, was always like hair pulling because he couldn't get um, what he mailed out or, or uh, you know, faxed out could come back the same way at all. There was so much corner cutting. Oh, yeah, and, it's amazing. Uh, you know, you'll send a drawing over that's pretty basic, and then what comes back bears no resemblance to what you sent. You're thinking, did they pick up the wrong file? What are they looking at? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's probably uh, not the way you think of it, but it sometimes felt like to Charlie that there was some... Um, like uh, actual bad business practice, like uh, we want to learn what you know and uh, get your expertise, and then we're going to cut you out. But yeah. in the meantime, we'll throw you off the track by mailing, you know, sending back a badly done version of your design. Yeah. To buy time, which just sounds like unbelievable. Um, 
Well, I think, you know, the definition of intellectual property is probably much, much different to the Chinese than it is to the Japanese. And I think to some extent you're seeing a little bit of that. And uh, it's... um, it's a shame that that our our drive to get prices lower and lower and lower has has sometimes led us down that path. It's something that I'm not totally comfortable with. I understand the need for it. I mean, the need is the goal is to get as many women as possible on bicycles, and and it just kills me to know that that woman who can only afford seven hundred dollars may not be able to get on one of my bikes if. If I can't provide it from, you know, another source, it's, you know, like damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. How is it working right now? There's been a big uh, shift for you. I think that, uh, well, I, I only know the superficial stuff, but uh, Liz Robert is helping out with the business. Yeah, she's doing a lot more than helping out. <laughs> uh, my partner and I, uh, in April of 2009, sold Liz a controlling interest in the company. So we've both stayed on as employees. I'm still president and founder. I'm working pretty much strictly with bicycles, uh, kind of with the social networking side of things, that aspect of it. But she is a very hardcore businesswoman that's come from a very strong background in operations and in marketing and in catalog. And she's a lot like me. I think in some extent, some extent because we're both Gemini, we have this hell-bent, get-out-of-my-way kind of attitude. And... and Boy, she is, when she sets off on a course, she goes the course, let me tell you. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. Um, I wanted to touch on the subject of sexism and find out if you ever ran into it. Yeah, I think, you know, <clears throat> in, in a lot of different funny kind of forms, in a way. You know, we when I first came up with this Precision Bicycle, I thought I, I should just shop it around to some of the bike shops here locally and, and try and get a feel for it. So I, I took it in. The shops, I'll, I'll say right up front, the shop has since become a terrific Terry dealer. The owner is a wonderful guy. But he didn't really know me, and I didn't know him, and I walked in the shop, and I have this $600 hand-built Shimano 600 EX bicycle. And he looked at it, and he said, no woman will ever pay $600 for a bicycle. <laughs> like, I'm out of here. <laughs> now, you have to say what year this is. This was in 1985, probably. Yeah, so, so for our non-mathematically inclined listeners, that's um, roughly $2,100 in now money. Right, exactly. At least, because, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, it might be more. It might be 3500 but I, just, I have an automatic uh-huh. inflation adjustment thingy. <laughs> yeah. And because, uh, you know, to modern ears, it sounds like it's affordable. But it I also sound. love the... Uh, the no woman, the, the, the anything that follows the words no woman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, it flips a switch. Yeah. And uh, ooh, <laughs> obviously he's um, come around. He's definitely come and around. So has the rest of the world. He's definitely uh, come he around. To, does he ever have a laugh about it? I haven't really brought it up it? to him. I don't know if he's heard that I've said it or not. I don't want to hurt his feelings. No, no, no. It's uh, it's just funny. It is funny. It's it funny. is funny. He might even think it's funny now, too, when he hears that conversation. We have a lot of good laughs together, so he, he really is a good guy. And now he can sell those $3,500 bicycles with no problem. That's <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, I know when I asked my dad if I could have some extracurricular um, uh, gymnastics classes, he said, no, daughter of mine will ever be a trained seal in the circus. 
And I went off and became a professional athlete. Oh, that's um, great. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, uh, I really, uh, I think it's from a playbook from the Victorian era. <laughs> and I, I laugh about it because it's, it is analogous to so many other um, pronouncements that are dead wrong, but it's just from such a firm standpoint. The other example I have, and is it okay to put it in the podcast, was when I first met Tom Ritchie, Gary Fisher and I were um, lovers at the time, and he wanted me to meet his business partner, and they were talking casually about this thing called the Tour de France, which I'd never heard of. (laughs) When I found out it was 30 30 days or 25 days of racing in the French Alps, you know, long, hard rides every day, I went, oh, I can't wait till I'm good enough to do it. And Tom Ritchie said, no woman will ever do the Tour de France. They've never met Jackie Phelan. I barely warm up after 40 miles. And they just kind of shrugged and carried on talking uh, about different things. And this was in 1981. And um, by, let's see, 1984, the first Tour de France Femme was uh, Mm -hmm. set in play. And the the races were, um, to get on the team, you had to race all these criteriums on the East Coast, sponsored by Self Magazine. And a girl named... um, uh, Ramona Di Viola qualified to get it, and she happened to be the one that Tom Ritchie was sort of loaning a bicycle to so she could beat me. And oh, what with a, a huge bonus if she ever beat me, but no no real sponsorship, just the loan of a bike and a jersey. And so she says, hey, Tom, I'm going to be going to the Tour de France. I'm on the team, you know. Uh, and he goes, you can't. You've got to stay in the States and beat Jackie. <laughs> and she goes, Tom, I'm... I, I've got an all-expenses-paid trip to the to race the Tour de France, and uh, and you're offering me the promise of a bonus and a loaned bicycle. If, if you were in my shoes, what would you do? And I didn't know this until maybe ten years ago when me and Ramona were talking about how she'd given him that ultimatum. I just knew that all of a sudden the best competition disappeared because she was went off to be a roadie for a while, and I, I'm friends with her, so she would send me these dispatches from France about how, how much fun she was having and who was hot in the men's pack and stuff like that, and some just some brilliant, funny jokes. But I, I just I thought that's great that the uh, he, was, he was let down by a girl having to go do the Tour de France. <laughs> Faintly ironic. That's great. And vastly off topic. <laughs> That's a great story. Just one of those, you know, no woman will ever. It uh, it belongs in my book, which is very slow to be, you know, coming into to print. But, um, it, I want to find out how the um, the articles on briefings in talented leadership is coming. Has Larry Fisher finished his magazine story about Fabulous You? <laughs> he has finished it, and I think it, it's not going into print for another month or so. He's promised me a PDF of the story, but I haven't seen it yet. I do stay in touch with him, though. Great. I think um, a hard copy would be even nicer. <laughs> yeah. Well, eventually, I'm sure one will follow. Yeah. Well, I would just. I'm just so happy that uh, outside the bike industry, you're getting some of the. Um, the uh, attention and respect that you really do, you know. Well, yeah. I, it's probably not cool for you to agree too much, but I think that you're, you know, you, you have been, uh, you've have gotten the, your share of incredible credit for for nurturing what was this vast untapped market and continues to be for very specific reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, because I don't think that the industry really listens. 
um, I wonder if you, with the added horsepower of Ms. Liz Robert, are going to be able to tackle some of the bigger challenges and, and win again because you're taking women seriously. Yeah, I I think so. I think it's going to take a little bit of time to do that as she you know, kind of gets the company headed in the direction she wants it to head in. And she is, she's big on laying groundwork, tons and tons and tons of groundwork. We don't just go out and start doing things without thinking about why we're doing them and making sure we do them in the right way and all that, which is a little bit different from the way I work. Um, but, but, you know, she was very careful about saying bicycles have to stay part of this business because I mean that that is what makes us original we can put our stake in the ground and say we are the original women's bicycle company and she definitely wants to expand the line of bicycles we're working that way a little bit through a licensing arrangement with ASI those are the guys who well they have uh Breezer, his bikes are yeah. under their awning right now, and Fuji and a bunch of other ones. And uh, we have quite a nice line of uh, aluminum Terry bicycles that are available now and just starting to appear at dealerships. And, of course, my real love is the work that I do with Richard Schwinn at Waterford with the hand-built line of bikes that we make. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's the next best thing to being able to braise them up myself is to call Richard or Mark Muller and just talk long and hard about frames. It's great. <laughs> wow, that is neat. Hey, if you could snap your fingers and make a difference in uh, U.S. transportation policy to make things better for bikes, what would it be? I think really as much as transportation policy, it has to be more about awareness. Just uh, the, the whole sharing the road thing, the whole not running over cyclists while you're talking on your cell phone and then having a legal system go, oh, well, we can't put you in jail. It would be too hard on your, your lifestyle and your... It, it just not mean changing policy? Yeah, I think it does. But, you know, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, policy would have to change. I'm not sure what it takes. I mean, you know, if you hit a bicycle with your car and kill him, how come you can walk away from that? I just don't. Because in the 70s, they changed it from being a criminal offense to a civil offense. There's already a lot of infrastructure here if we could only share that infrastructure a little bit more than we do. I mean, there have been, when I have not commuted to work since I've been in Rochester. Well, I used to a couple of times, but, you know, it's like taking your life in your hands. And I thought, I'd rather be alive and and doing work on bicycles than dead and having tried to make a point by commuting to work. But if, you know, if we could do that, I think it would be fantastic. I think that's more important right now than putting in another bike lane or something like that. Totally. In a way, I mean, that just segregates that means of transportation even more. I mean, maybe it's good. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, um, I, what I'm uh, ruthlessly steering you towards is the idea that, like, in Europe, we sh- they, they punish people who hit cyclists regardless of what the excuse they have is. Yeah. And yeah. we don't. Yeah. Well, I, that's The way I put it is that you get to kill a few people before you have your license taken away, whether it's from drunk driving or from being too old or just being on the phone. But if they would recriminalize harming vulnerable road users, that would help a lot because that would get people's attention, which is a version of awareness. That would get people's attention. That would also get, you know, and not only get the attention of people who are thinking, 
well, I don't have to worry about cyclists or whatever as drivers, but but cyclists who want to be on the road but don't always go out on the road because now maybe they'll think, all right, people are thinking about it. I have more protection. I should go out and do this. But I, right. you know, I've been reading some of the articles in, in Velo News recently about uh, I don't know, it was a stockbroker or someone who who messed up a cyclist pretty good. The cyclist will be all right, and the courts pretty much said, you know, it would be a real hardship on you if you were in jail because then you couldn't maintain this job as a stockbroker and I'm like wow mm-hmm. wow do we have our priorities screwed up or what yeah well if you're a car culture based on bottom line profits in the short term on a quarterly basis then you're going to have short-sighted automobile driven business favorable um policy <laughs> when I talked to groups about how bikes were important back 110 years ago it uh, I say, look how fat the uh, car section is in your paper, which is not fat anymore. But I was, this was when they were there was uh, print media. Think about that being the uh, the amount of bicycle advertising. That's how huge it was in 1880. Oh, Just to yeah. give you a clue and some perspective. Yeah. And um, you know, people couldn't believe that, but it's true. And um, now, if that's the case, now it's cars, not bicycles. They are not going to want to have things favor. A non-car alternative. That's why we'll have to have some kind of phony fuel so people can drive to work. They're not thinking about an alternative to the car. Yeah, right. At least in my pessimistic uh, worldview, and that comes from an unsupportive father. So it's like I, I, next time I come back in life, it's going to be with supportive parents. So I, can really get <laughs> I, I feel like uh, I've managed to make the uh, uh, half an hour Mark, right? Of, of oh, definitely. Yeah. 36 minutes and, and 14 seconds. Okay, well, cool. <laughs> the joy well, of the digital tape recorder. <laughs> <laughs> Super. It's, uh, there's things that we haven't mentioned. I, I wouldn't mind if you wondered what I was going to ask if I overlooked an important, glaringly obvious question. Like, answer it for me now. You know, I can't really think of anything. I think this was a great conversation because you certainly covered a lot of stuff that a lot of other people don't cover when they talk to me. So it's it's really been a lot more fun than some other interviews have been. But, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, I think we should do more of these because I, you know, just talking about maybe bicycling in general or attitudes or things that are going on or current events or that kind of thing because I think we could have some good dialogue here. Definitely. Uh, you're even more my hero than half an hour ago. I'm just blown away at how much work you're able to to um, make happen. Oh, well, thank with you. With your impressive power. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that, Jackie. That's very nice of you. <laughs> so, um, I guess any uh, final like words? I mean, that's a, that's a reason. How about that for pressure, huh? Oh, man. What are we going to say? Thank you for your time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I know. Well, I always ask this at a dinner party, which I don't haven't been to for many years. But uh, if, you, if if money were no object, what would you be doing? Oh, that's an easy one. You mean like if I had all the money I wanted, what would I do with it? I yeah, would. And what could you put oh, into motion? I would be buying up land so fast it would make your head spin, and I would be getting conservation easements on every single acre of it. And and just trying to to get habitat squared away and <laughs> memorialized for all time, 
mm-hmm. that people couldn't develop on it and mess it up and get their hands on it. I mean, I mean, I've often thought about that. I thought, gee, if I had Bill Gates' money, you know, I would in this town that I live in now, I would every piece of property on the market, it would be bought and safely stuck away somewhere. That that is what I would do with it for sure. Well, that's very cool. I hope that you're able to uh, snag the uh, trust for public lands attention and make some of that possible because what they do is buy up the tracts and then sell tiny sh- shavings of it to cover the cost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, most of it's put into the public ownership. Yeah, it's such, you know, I mean, I think really doing stuff like that is probably the only way we're going to be able to save a lot of this land because we don't seem to be able to get people to understand the concept of habitat. I mean, a lot of people can't even define habitat. They know it's important and they want to see it preserved. But they're not really sure what it is. It's this amorphous kind of thing, and they don't even realize that in their own little backyards, they already own a chunk of it, and there are a lot of things they could do to to make life a lot better for other species on this earth just by simply thinking about it. Have you heard the, of the movie The Work of a Thousand? No. It's by Susan Edwards, who used to be one of the mover, shaker, wombats, and she did a documentary about uh, a gal who's um, in her own backyard uh, wanted to restore a creek, and um, she it, it was a single person, and she managed to make it happen uh, over the course of, Marian Stoddard was her name, and, and uh, rather than just being a housewife, she decided to mm-hmm. dig in and start um Saving a creek. I'm, I'm saying it very, uh, mm-hmm. very generally. But anyway, it, it worked. She saved the creek, and the, the other miracle is that the, the movie got made. I think it's about a 40-minute documentary about the, the value of a sink. Documentary is definitely an agent for social change. Yeah, uh, for sure. A real for sure. Fan of them. So, okay, um, let us resolve to talk some more, Virginia. It's been really fun. Thank you. A little bit more about you. Same here. It's been great.